0: what is scarier than a man who makes his own morality? A man who decides the destiny of others through his own twisted set of rules? Would we call this man a psychopath or a harbinger of fate? A ruthless killer or an enlightened being? To find out, we're going to look at one of fiction's most infamous villains. Anton Chagur, the arbiter of death. Welcome to Villains, a podcast original. I'm Alastair Murden. On this show, we look at the world's most infamous villains, both real and imagined. We aim to understand how villainy translates from history into our greatest fictional stories. You can find episodes of Villains and all other podcast originals for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. To stream Villains for free on Spotify, just open the app and type Villains in the search bar. On this show, we will look to nail down our changing cultural perception about what makes a Villain. We aim to do so by comparing some of the scariest men and women to ever exist to the most chilling characters in literature, cinema, and on stage. Over the next 10 weeks, we will cover our first category, the postmodern psychopath. This includes fictional characters like Villanelle from Killing Eve, Alex from A Clockwork Orange, and Norman Bates from Psycho. We'll also examine what these villains look like in the real world through the likes of hitman Richard Kuklinski, serial killer Ed Kemper, and murderer Angela Simpson. But today, we are focusing on one of the most recognisable villains in recent memory. The concept of a villain is not a fixed one. It has changed over the course of time and varied between cultures. This is because a villain is not necessarily defined by the actions of the individuals, Rather, they are made such by the collective mind of society, what we deem as wrong and evil. Which brings us to the first type of villain we will cover over the next 10 weeks the postmodern psychopaths, or in layman's terms, the agents of chaos. A psychopath is a person who is devoid of empathy. They make harmful and aggressive choices without remorse and rarely take the blame for their actions. In short, a psychopath is someone who will have difficulty living within an ordered society because they do not operate with the same emotional capacity as an everyday person. In the late 2000s, film saw a strange flurry of these types of emotionless psychopaths. Heath Ledger as the Joker in The Dark Knight. Daniel Day-Lewis as Daniel Plainview in There Will Be Blood and, of course, Javier Bardem as Anton Chigurh. These characters each relentlessly pursued something, chaos, oil and money respectively, without much in the way of reason or motivation. Their pursuit was furious, taking lives and leaving a destructive path in their wake, but what they truly wanted, what they truly chased, was never made clear. It's a chilling concept, to stop at nothing for something ambiguous. Where did the idea of these characters come from? Why did they emerge in the zeitgeist at such a similar time? This is the group that shined the brightest spotlight on the postmodern psychopath, the type of character whose actions shed light on their incredible motivation and drive but there was no clear reason behind this driving motivation. What's more, these characters are not so unrealistic as we might think. In fact, a three-year study by Samuel J. Leisted and Paul Linkowski, called Psychopathy and the Cinema, Fact or Fiction, concluded that the subject of today's episode, Anton Chigurh, was the most realistic psychopath ever to grace the screen. The combination of his, quote, incapacity for love, absence of shame or remorse, lack of psychological insight, inability to learn from past experiences, cold-blooded attitude, ruthlessness, total determination, and lack of empathy, make him an utterly chilling antagonist that seems to be effectively invulnerable and resistant to any form of emotion or humanity. It is this proximity to reality that makes Shiger so compelling. And it is the reason we will use him to launch into our discussion of the post-modern psychopath. The 2005 novel No Country for Old Men by Cormac McCarthy and the subsequent 2008 film of the same name introduced Shiger as a strange sort of hitman. Operating on a plane outside of social customs, even those of the gangsters and drug runners he works with. But this quality, which makes him almost unnervingly stable and lucid for such a brutal killer, also gives him the features of something otherworldly. Chigurh is the product of McCarthy's bleak imagination and the lost sentiment of the American Southwest in 1980. But to understand the depth of this villain, We must understand the story. For those of you that have seen the movie or read the book, this is simply a brief recap. Be warned, there are spoilers going forward. No Country for Old Men is, at its core, a very simple story. Out hunting one day in Terrell County, near the US-Mexican border in southwest Texas, a Vietnam War veteran discovers the bloody remains of a drug deal gone wrong. He follows the last man standing until he finds a satchel filled with money. A lot of money. About $2.4 million worth. The man, Llewellyn Moss, takes the money and goes on the run. He is pursued by the several parties involved in the deal. Pablo Acosta's Mexican cartel, Anton Shiger, a hitman hired by an unknown party who also stakes claim to the money, and the county sheriff, Ed Tom Bell. By the time the story is over, the man that takes the money is dead, the county sheriff is retired, and the hitman Shiger has returned the money to his anonymous employer. But inside this basic plot is a much richer and more complicated tale. A tale of characters who are unnerving in their unpredictability. None more so than Anton Shiger. A man of such inexplicable behaviour that Javier Bardem's brilliant portrayal is forever burned into the legacy of cinematic history. His role is simple. Find the money at all cost. This means pursue Llewellyn Moss at all cost. But when we start to uncover how Sugar executes these pursuits, we see that he is no ordinary bounty hunter. He is calm. Shockingly ruthless, intelligent, poised, an ideal killer. One who might even garner a form of respect in the same way we respect so many of cinema's hitmen and assassins. At least, he might have, if his motivations were not so utterly baffling. And yet, Shiger does not seem totally devoid of human characteristics. He appears to follow a self-defined set of rules. In fact, he does so more stringently than all of the other characters in the novel. Perhaps this dedication is the thing that makes him most terrifying of all. But if we are to paint a picture of this villain, we must look at the moments that most define the character, moments where he holds life and death in his hands. When we first meet Shiger, he is in handcuffs in a police station. Handcuffs, he uses to brutally choke the officer by wrapping the chain link around his neck when he is completely unaware. Shiger then takes the deputy's police vehicle and pulls over an unsuspecting victim. As he approaches the car, he carries a gas tank with a hose attached. We eventually discover this to be a cattle stun gun, but Shiger uses it with a much more sinister purpose. He briefly places his hands on the man's face, raises the stun gun to his forehead and discharges it, killing the man instantly. We are two scenes into the movie, hardly two pages into the book, and already we know that this man is ruthless and kills without hesitation. Suddenly, any time we witness Shiger, we are on guard. He is dangerous, even unafraid of the police. So when we see him for the third time as he stops at a gas station, a moment that would otherwise be ordinary, suddenly becomes rife with tension. The gas attendant tries to make conversation with Shiger as he pays, but this accidentally triggers an uncomfortable aggression in the killer which is when Shiger decides to play a peculiar game. He flips a coin and forces the man to choose heads or tails. In the coin toss, Shiger intends to determine whether or not he will kill this unassuming stranger. It is an odd method for a man we already witnessed senselessly murder two men in quick succession but it does offer a quick insight into his line of thinking. As he grills the attendant, he seems particularly interested in the choices he made that led him to stand in front of Shiger in the gas station. When he will close, his routine, his marriage, the fact that the house he now lives in was owned by his wife's family. It is clear that the attendant's choices are the most important thing to Shiger. And when the ultimate decision comes, to call the coin toss, Shiger insists that it is the attendant who calls it, saying firmly, I cannot do it for you. The importance of the coin flip cannot be overstated. Shiger is deciding whether or not to murder a stranger, a total stranger, on the suddenly bleak odds of heads or tails but because Shiger frames this not as a game of chance rather as one of choice it is revealed that Shiger does not really believe in luck he is a man who operates on the principles of fate who believes choices cannot be undone especially if those choices brought them into Shiger's murderous grasp it was fate that decided their destiny fate that forces Shiger to kill them. This is one of the most frightening things about this character. He considers his acts of murder to be inevitable. However, this principle works both ways. When the man calls heads, Shiger reveals that he has won the most dangerous game. Shiger leaves the gas station. The attendant lives. This is an unsettling introduction to the hitman's methods. He is not a random psychopath killing at every turn. There is an order and set of rules that he plays by. Rules that are his own. Rules that no one truly understands until they are looking into his eyes. Looking into the eyes of death itself. Something that even the roughest men melt in the face of. Enter Carson Wells, a bounty hunter of sorts, another vicious hitman who once worked side by side with Anton Shiger himself. An unnamed party hires Wells to track down Chigurh and the satchel for this reason. He is one of the few people to have seen and known Shigur, a fact that prevails in both the novel and the film. Wells is important to the story because he gives Shigur a past. Whereas otherwise, he would have seemed to have appeared from the jaws of hell itself. Wells forces us to consider that even a psychopath like Chigurh has to be a part of society on some level. But even Wells fails to recognize his true nature at the time it matters most. When Wells returns to his hotel in a small border town in Texas, Shiger is waiting for him and holds him up at gunpoint. Then, the two one-time partners talk. In this exchange, there is no coin involved, but the killer does something else that is quite strange. He tries to get Wells to admit that he is going to die. Wells will not. He offers Shiger money instead, assuring him that it would be a good payday. Shiger agrees that it would be a good payday, but he says it's just in the wrong currency. During the exchange, Shiger seems more appalled than anything. He is almost offended that Wells would try such pleas rather than admit he was going to die. He even uses a peculiar word, dignity. There is no dignity in Wells' denial of his own death. After a brief back and forth, Shiger does what everyone knows he will do, and shoots his one-time partner. The most interesting takeaway from this scene is that Shiger is not just a man obsessed with directing fate, but a shepherd of death. It is the second time we have seen him converse in depth with a person whose life he holds in his hands. In both cases, Shiger wants them to realize that their whole life's path brought them here. He poses the question directly to Wells, saying, If the rule you followed brought you here, then of what use was the rule? We might go further. If Wells' life only led him to this point, to death at the hands of his ex-partner, what was the point of his life? Shiger wants Wells to admit that he's going to die. Fine. This seems relatively normal among old combat veterans. They share a perverse sense of honor. But more than that, he is curious about meaning. How could Wells have made a single right choice in his life if it simply led him to this death at Shiger's hand? Suddenly, Shiger, the senseless killer, seems to have a type of sense he is there to impose the will of fate. With the gas station attendant, Shiger knew that he did not choose to come into his path, so he gave him a final choice in the coin toss. Welds, on the other hand, came after Shiger, chased death itself and thus followed his rule to the end of his life. Shiger's first two extended conversations reveal a great deal about his psychopathy. But the third moment that is key to his story is by far the most revealing. We'll discuss his confrontation with Carla Jean Moss, Llewellyn's wife, after this. Now, back to the story. Anton Chigurh's actions in No Country for Old Men are ruthless, determined, and seemingly completely devoid of any sense of human empathy. We have seen him kill at random. We have seen him call on the hands of fate, all while displaying little emotion or regard for consequence. But what is very peculiar about this villain is that despite his disregard for rules, his behaviour seemed to have a rigid and ordered quality. This strict code that he follows, what Carson Wells calls principles that transcend money or drugs or anything like that, causes him to act in an incredibly unforgiving manner. So in his first and last conversation with Llewellyn Moss, Shiger gives Moss a choice. This conversation happens over the phone. Moss is almost recovered from the wounds caused by his shootout with Shiger. Because he recently killed Carson Wells, who Moss was ready to turn to for aid, Shiger now has the power, and he makes his instructions very clear. Bring him the satchel, and Shiger will forgive Moss by only killing him. Do not comply, and Shiger will go to Odessa, Texas, to kill Moss's wife, Carla Jean. Then, he will kill Moss. Once again, Shiger is tossing a coin in the air and giving his victim a choice. He knows that the only certain outcome in life is death. Moss can choose, but in doing so, he will choose his own fate and the fate of his wife. But Moss, perhaps predictably, responds with the stubborn fortitude that has propelled him this far in the story, that has allowed him to be the only man in either the book or the movie to have exchanged gunfire with Shiger and survived. He says he will not give in, and in fact, will come after Shiger with an equal vengeance. Shiger's response is once again off-putting and unexpected. I'm glad to hear that, he says. You are beginning to disappoint me. And here we see how these two characters are of the same class, the same breed. It is why their world is separate from the rest of the American Southwest of the 1980s why they can make their own rules, have shootouts in the streets, pay people for aid with money literally covered in their own blood, cross borders in hospital gowns and blow up pharmacy windows to steal prescription drugs. This is all because sugar and Moss are Vietnam veterans and in many ways they have been cast out of American society. So they too banish the traditional ideas of order from their lives. The Vietnam War was, in all ways, a war of divisions. It shattered the illusion of American morals, causing an immense internal anxiety, sparking rampant protests, dividing neighbours, destroying ideals. The soldiers that went off to Vietnam did so with a more slumped and reserved hesitation. There was not a clear purpose here, but rather an underlying insecurity of political posturing. The reasons for staying in the war became ambiguous, as Presidents Lyndon Johnson and Richard Nixon both struggled over how to execute a clean evacuation strategy while saving face. Protests raged and the United States was torn in two, evidenced by the Kent State shooting and the hard-hat riots, when 200 construction workers got into an intense physical altercation with 1,000 protesting students in New York City in May of 1970. In no country, McCarthy, as many have before him, pits this trauma against the clarity of World War II, when the United States responded against an unjust attack on its soil. They fought against Nazis and fascism for the ideals of democracy. The soldiers returned home heroes, and veterans were welcomed with open arms and lauded with adoration. The horrors of war are universal, and World War II saw its fair share of terrors, but it was the perception of the wars that made all the difference. The Vietnam veterans returned to a polarized and hostile country one that did not accept what they fought for and rejected their suffering. They were ambushed at the airports when they arrived home, harassed on a daily basis, not to mention that many soldiers had seen horrors so terrible they had little ability to share it with their loved ones. In a sense, they were completely alone and had little hope of regaining their lives, their jobs, their family, let alone their dignity. Llewellyn Moss's father reflects that when Moss returned, he was spit on by protesters and forced to physically retaliate. When Moss takes the money, he is, in a way, rejecting the society that has rejected him. He returns to the thing he knows about, war. And with war comes the certainty of death. Throughout the entire story, Moss seems to live with the idea that death could catch up with him at any moment in time. This is how he escapes the wrath of Shiger. When he tells Shiger that he is not done, that he will not value his wife's life above his principles, Shiger is relieved. He is no longer disappointed in Moss because he knows that they share a similar ideology about death. It can happen at any time, and we must always be prepared for it. But Shiger lacks the thing that carries Moss to his grave. Empathy. And this brings us to the last defining encounter with Shiger, when he meets Carla Jean. Moss's wife. At this point in the story, we are some time removed from Moss's death after he dies in a standoff with the Mexican cartel. Shiger has returned the money to his employer and left an incredibly gory trail of violence in his wake. The fact that Shiger does not keep the money should not be lost. Even his employer seems surprised to see it again. Once again, it is evidence of Shigur's perverse but strict morality. Carla Jean Moss has just buried her mother who died of cancer, leaving her completely alone. But her grief does not protect her from the wrath of Shiger. He finds her in her room and once more, in a chilling back and forth, tries to convince her of his line of reasoning he assures her that her husband Llewellyn was at fault when he chose the money and his life over her own. After his usual rhetoric, Shiger allows her the coin toss, insisting that she call it. There are two differing accounts of what happens next. In the film, we never see the results of the coin toss. Shiger leaves the house and checks his boots, theoretically looking for bloodstains, implying that he killed her. In the novel, Carla Jean loses the toss. She tries to convince Shiger that the coin is worthless. It is only the madman in him that drives him to kill. And here, Shiger compares himself to two things, God and an accountant. He says, quote, Every moment in your life is a turning and every one a choosing. Somewhere you made a choice. All followed to this. The accounting is scrupulous. The shape is drawn. No line can be erased. I had no belief in your ability to move a coin to your bidding. How could you? A person's path through the world seldom changes and even more seldom will it change abruptly and the shape of your path was visible from the beginning. Shiger is reiterating his belief in fate and at the same time completely absolving himself from blame. After all, he was not in charge of what Carla Jean had to do in her life to get to this moment. It is an interesting and eerily logical explanation from a mass murderer, but then he shows a moment of self-reflection when Shiger says, quote, most people don't believe that there can be such a person. You can see what a problem that must be for them. How to prevail over that which you refuse to acknowledge the existence of. When I came into your life, your life was over. It had a beginning, a middle and an end. This is the end. You can say that things could have turned out differently that they could have been some other way. But what does that mean? They are not some other way. They are this way. You're asking that I second-say the world. Do you see? And then, something strange and unbelievable happens. Carla Jean agrees with him with the vicious mass murderer, who has completely unseated everything she had known in her life. She agrees, and then he kills her. Coming up, we'll look at the implications of Anton Chigurh's character and reflect on whether or not such a monster could truly exist. Now, back to the story. We have looked at three instances of Anton Chigurh's ordered executions specifically because they combine to give a complete picture of the philosophy of a psychopath. First, he flips his coin and shows us that he will always abide by his rules. Second, he exposes the difference between himself and other normal hitmen by displaying his unparalleled intimacy with death. Third. He proves that his arguments contain a certain level of logic and that he is capable of being a perverse shepherd of death. While many of Chigurh's other killings seem random, he often still gives them a type of ritual. His weapon of choice is a cattle stun gun, which he uses to punch out locks and to murder people at close range. The use of such a device suggests that Shiger has a divine opinion of himself. The people he kills are but cattle lining up at the slaughterhouse. So what is it exactly that makes Shiger stand out as such a terrifying villain? His psychotic lack of emotion? His ruthless methods? His unusual weapons? His utter lack of compromise? He kills at will, acts with incredible purpose and intellect, is capable of ignoring incredible pain, does not seem to want anything, he returns the money he has viciously pursued the entire novel, reacts the same whether he has won or lost the infamous coin toss. Chigurh is truly complex and horrific. From a cultural perspective, he represents our evolving understanding of a psychopath, particularly in cinema. As mentioned, in a 400-movie study conducted over three years, he was dubbed the most realistic version of a psychopath in movie history. This was in part because by the early 20th century, we understood more about the brain and the way it functions than ever before, but also a world that continuously found more killers and madmen capturing the headlines. Indeed, the 1980s, the decade no country took place, saw the greatest spike in serial killing activity the United States has seen to this day, which makes it incredibly difficult to discuss without including the effects of the Vietnam War. As we touched on with Moss, the war changed the nature of the country and the nature of the country's youth, causing widespread psychological and moral damage. very much a product of Vietnam, brought a sense of the chaos and death he witnessed overseas back with him. Because we never get a glimpse of Shiger's childhood, it would not be completely uncalled for to attribute a piece of his madness to the terrible experiences he encountered in the war. John Wilson and Sheldon Ziegelbaum found strong evidence in 1983 that severe PTSD brought on from the Vietnam War was linked to the likelihood of committing a criminal act. We can surmise then that Shiger was not a self-made idealist as he would like you to think, but a creation of a brutal and uncertain war. But perhaps we can go one step further. Perhaps Shiger is not merely a product of the war, but a symbol of the war itself. He is destruction manifest, He brings chaos and gunfire to the streets. He leaves a trail of bodies both innocent and complicit. His coin flip method is reminiscent of the odds of the draft. When first seeing him, Moss describes Shiger as exotic, perhaps referencing the jungles of Vietnam. And, ultimately, his motives and purposes are uncertain. He delivers the money to an anonymous businessman who is himself surprised to ever see the satchel again. He stringently abides by his principles of killing. He does not seem willing or capable of displaying any sort of empathy or mercy. It is always fate that must decide. It is not a completely outlandish interpretation, but it does run counter to some of the most important parts of his motivation. That he counts himself among the divine, or in another sense, death's accountant. He adds up the pieces of a person's life, and then is there to determine if they are ready to pass on. And, as we see in his killing of Carson Wells, and his relief that Llewellyn Moss wants to continue their game, Shiger believes that a constant acceptance of death is the only possible way to live life. It is important to stress that this is not the product of some profound philosophy, but a worldview mangled by the harsh reality of a tumultuous environment, in this case, Vietnam. A worldview that allows Shiger to operate in another incredibly chaotic world, one that we have yet to mention. The drug trade, the inciting incident of the entire story, is a heroin deal gone wrong. Up until the late 1970s, the Texas-Mexico border had been relatively peaceful. Around the turn of 1980, the first major cartels began to rise in Mexico and territorial battles turned the border into a war zone. The public shootouts and massive carnage seen in No Country for Old Men was suddenly an everyday occurrence in South Texas. Pablo Acosta, the drug lord whose gang Moss comes up against, was responsible for most of the real-life violence as well. Acosta was pumping unprecedented amounts of heroin, cocaine and marijuana across the border and raking in enough money to keep authorities on both sides off his tail. Sheriff Ed Tom Bell laments that the only reason this works is because of the demand for drugs. There is demand because of the country's crumbling identity. It is a land of chaos, much like Vietnam before it. And men like Chigurh, men that can ruthlessly navigate this landscape, are the ones who emerge from the dust and thrive. It is a dichotomy between the psychopath and his environment, both feeding on the chaos of the other, both relying on the other's cultivation, both agents of death. But this is not just a fictional idea. History has seen its fair share of ruthless killers. Above them all, Richard Kuklinski known as the Iceman, stands out as someone who seems to share Shiger's peculiar and chilling approach to death. Over his 35-year career as a hitman in New York City, Kuklinski claimed to have killed anywhere from 100 to over 200 people. Often these people would not be murdered on a job, but merely for crossing his path or saying the wrong thing. Much like Shiger, he was working within his own set of rules in determining whether a person would live or die. He was not motivated by the same things that corrupted the men he worked for – money, greed, power. He was an agent unto himself. An agent of chaos. It is the thing that connects all the villains we will discuss for these first 10 episodes, our so-called postmodern sociopaths we cannot understand their motivations or destructive pursuits that is what makes these killers so terrifying they do not approach murder with the same pleasure-seeking thrill of a serial killer but from a place of morality a unique morality that is based in their psychosis killing is a means to something unknown a means to a type of survival. So they cannot be appeased or deterred in any sort of way. Next time, we'll dive into the story of Richard Kuklinski and see how he compares to Anton Chigurh. We'll also look at how the world created such a psychopath and how this changes our understanding of history's greatest villains. Thanks for listening to Villains. You can find all episodes of Villains and all other podcast originals for free on Spotify. Not only does Spotify already have all of your favorite music, but now Spotify is making it easy for you to enjoy all of your favorite podcast originals, like Villains, for free from your phone, desktop, or smart speaker. To stream Villains on Spotify, just open the app and type Villains in the search bar. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Parcast and Twitter at Parcast Network. I'll see you next time. Villains was created by Max Cutler, is a production of Cutler Media and is part of the Parcast Network. It is produced by Max and Ron Cutler, sound designed by Ron Shapiro, with production assistance by Joel Stein and Carly Madden. This episode of Villains was written by Drew Cole. I'm Alastair Murden.